You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Long-term mortgage rates fell again this week, marking one month of declines. This will most likely lead to a very robust spring home buying season. And for real estate investors, lower rates increase cash flow. I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. It is a great time for real estate investors to lock in low interest rates while rents are increasing. And our guest today has helped hundreds of real estate investors since 1997 to get the loans they need to build a legacy in real estate. Aaron Chapman is not just a loan broker, though. While he's financed about 700 transactions per year, he gets to see who's successful and who's not. He's been able to use that experience to coach others. And he's with us here today on The Real Well Show. So, Aaron, welcome. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You were quite popular at our last event because you're the money guy and everybody wants to know the money guy. <laughs> that is interesting how that works out. They don't recognize me as a money guy until such time that they're told and then that's it. You know, your, your time is not yours anymore. And yes, I had a great response from all the folks that were there. It was a really, really cool event. Well, now that you mention it, yeah, you don't look like your typical mortgage guy. <laughs> this is true. That actually happened kind of by accident. I started out my career, really, I started out my career calling out of the mines in New Mexico because of an interesting situation. They had shut down the project. And before that, I'd grown up on a cattle ranch. I ran heavy equipment. I drove truck. I worked in the oil fields of Wyoming at one point, right out of high school. And then I was mining with my dad. And we would go up to Queston, New Mexico, which is right near the Colorado border, and we'd work 13 shifts. And I'd come back for six to see my wife and infant son and go back. But when they shut that project down, I was one of the first ones to get laid off. And I was, thought I'd get a job real easy. And I was hunting, hunting, hunting for a job, and it got to the point where I couldn't find anything. Mm. And we were so desperate that I even, I even applied for a job to do $10 an hour to haul landscape material. And when I went in there with my application, gave them my credentials, they literally told me I was too overqualified. Mm. I was escorted out of their office. And I remember sitting in the parking lot of that materials company in my pickup, literally shedding tears over the fact I couldn't find a job and we had zero money left. So on my way to a grocery store to get diapers for my infant son with a coupon my wife cut out of a newspaper or something, I noticed that my, uh, the light went on in my truck for my gas being out of, out of fuel. So I had to find a fuel station and a grocery store. And it just so happened down the street from where I was at, there was a fuel station in front of a grocery store. So I pulled up, swiped my debit card, got declined. At that point, I started walking the parking lot until I started and started to find enough change to get a couple gallons of gas, went in, got the diapers on my way out, went face to face with a guy who used to do all the scheduling work and the equipment company I used to dig swimming pools for. He asked me what was going on in my life. I told him what was happening. He took me and my wife to dinner the following night at Red Lobster with a gift certificate and introduced me to this industry 21 years ago. Wow. So I came from a background that's far different than where I started. And it wasn't easy. I started as a telemarketer. You know, and I tried to conform and tried to conform as best as I could to the industry. It just wasn't me. I really felt like I was lying to the world with my appearance. <laughs> then an opportunity came along in a weird, weird way. In 2008, I was heading out of town. It was August 8th, 2008. It was 1224 in the afternoon. I was ripping down the highway on a Harley and a guy came into me and put me into another car at 80 plus miles an hour. I woke up in the hospital uh, with shattered legs, 
And after a few days, uh, I had a spot on my right side of my face. It was, uh, my beard would not fill in. But I tore that side of my face up so badly that it uh, actually replanted, I guess, or moved the hair or something. And my beard filled in. So I decided not to shave until I learned how to walk again. And that's really where the beard started coming from. And I've decided to just keep it. Oh, that's the story. It's a, it's a pretty long beard. Yes, it is. It's, it's easy top quality. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it's actually even. And sometimes it's even longer when I un, when I unbraid it, it gets more out of hand. It was the reason it got longer. I used to keep a trend, and then I ran into Ron Phillips at a CG event, and he had just trimmed his, and I trimmed mine. And he had made comment on how his was longer than mine before. I'm like, well, I just trimmed two inches off of mine. I said, well, want something? I'm not going to trim mine until I see you again. I have yet to see Ron since that event. <laughs> well, I think you'll you'll be the winner. So, <laughs> so right before uh, the show, we were talking about there's so much more to loans than rates and terms. So let's talk about that. What did, what did you mean by that? Well, I've noticed that, well, of course, the marketing, right? You know, the marketing is the one thing that's trying to drive people to come talk to somebody about business, come, come to us for the loans. And the best thing that it can offer is like, we're going to give you the best rate, the best cost, and the fastest closing. That's the exact same promise from everybody. If you can't get anywhere close on rate, anywhere close on cost, and you can't close reasonably, you shouldn't even be talking to people. So there's got to be more to it. Well, I started working with real estate investors almost exclusively since 2003. And I noticed this evolution of the real estate investors starting to go from a person looking at their investment properties as them spending money and going into debt, right? That's a consumer mindset. Would you and I agree that 72% of the U.S. economy is consumption? That's the statistics out there, right? Yep. And have you heard, and I heard this through, through a uh, person who used to work with Central Bank, that 19 plus percent, like 19 19.7% of the global economy is the U.S. consumer. So when that is the case, people are being attracted in by the, what they can make cheap, right? That's why Amazon's doing awesome, Walmart, all these things. Well, once a person starts to take the time to understand what they're really getting with real estate, they start realizing they're not really spending any money. And they're really not going into debt. What they're doing is they're moving their liquid capital from a liquid asset to a non-liquid asset that is now growing significantly because somebody else is occupying it. So I tell many of the investors is as they start to evolve a bit is to wrap their head around the fact that they are now the CEO of a real estate investment firm. They're no longer consuming something. And as long as they pick a good team, have you ever heard a successful CEO say that the reason they are successful because they are the dumbest person in the boardroom. <laughs> right. Yeah. I've heard a lot of people say that. In fact, I met one guy, very successful man, and he's truly the dumbest person in every room he walks in. <laughs> but he figured out one principle, right, is get the best people to seat. So I tell them when they say, hey, I'm working with Kathy's group over at Real Wealth. I'm like, well, then you've already got your operations division. You can stop looking. You have an, a chief operations officer and whoever it is that you have been assigned to work with within that group. Now, that individual is going to help you to look into different markets to consider, why to consider those markets, and then introduce you to a regional operations team that is going to be able to source the properties, acquire them, rehab, manage, maintain. That's an entire operations division for free. Have you ever heard the term good judgment comes from experience? Experience comes from bad judgment? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I hear that's big, big among pilots. Because you learn real quick when you do something stupid, right? as we all have. Yeah. So what I've explained to these guys is when they're working with you guys and your team and the people that you have vetted and bring to the table, 
They don't have to go through that process of earning good judgment by making mistakes. The problem with real estate is it can become very, very costly. It can be very damaging if you learn that way. So I explained to him by making that choice and putting the right people at your board table, you now don't have to go through the stress or the pain or the complete loss that is the learning curve. They've already done it. I mean, Kathy, you can probably tell hundreds of stories of stupid maneuvers made that people have been able to gain knowledge from that other people have learned from or they have learned from. Why put somebody through that? We want to avoid that. So that's one thing. The other side of it is I tell them I'm applying for CFO. Now, albeit figuratively, I'm not going to be running spreadsheets. I'm not going to be running a finance division for them. This is going to be like their trusted advisor on the left side of their board table on the financial piece. And when it comes to that good judgment part of it, I've been doing this since 1997, looking at real estate investors exclusively since 2003. Last year, I did 707 transactions to real estate investors. The year before that was 676 and on back, thousands of transactions. I get to see a lot of judgment at work. So I explained to them when it comes to that part of it, it's not just doing the loan. We're talking about them having to make decisions and me being able to tell them where I've seen other people be successful in that same decision and where they've failed. Now, one of the big things I want them to get involved in is they're really looking at the loan properly. We're talking, let's, let's you and me do a little bit of math. Are you okay with that? Let's do it. Okay. So it's going to be very, very simple math. I'm not running a trick on you because you're going to think I'm tricking you, but I'm not. It's a very simple, simple uh, number that I'm going to throw out there. So we're going to talk about a $100,000 transaction with you putting 20% down. Now, if you're buying a home for 100000 and you're putting 20% down, what is the dollar amount of that 20%? $20,000. I've, I've done this before. $20,000. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And I needed a calculator the first time. I don't need more. <laughs> now, if you're putting 20000 down, that means the loan amount is how much? 80000 80000 Now, you may need a calculator for this one. If you're dividing the 80000 over the 30 years it's going to take to pay it off, so I encourage them, if you can, run that thing all the way out. So if you divide the 80000 by 30, what is the average dollar amount per year that's getting paid off over the life of that loan? $2,666. Exactly. And if you want to run it off, 66 cents. And 66 so cents. you divide, exactly. And it keeps going. The six will go on forever. <laughs> well, if you divide that into the 20,000, that means you're 20,000 because somebody's paying off that note is gaining by 13.33% every year that you keep it going, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So right there, we're seeing before cash flow, before appreciation, before anything else, just having somebody occupying that space, getting the right team to source the property, choosing the right property as the CEO of that business, and then keeping it occupied, the 20% is growing by that amount as long as somebody else is paying for it, correct? Right. If we had a stock account that over 30 years, you put in 20,000, became 100, you'd think you were awesome. <laughs> well, everybody got, has that if they get the right people involved and pick the right property. That is the need that a real estate investor has to wrap their head around. Now, secondly, what is inflation doing to our dollar's value right now? Uh, well, when we're experiencing inflation, it lessens the value of the dollar, which lessens the value of the debt. Correct. The dollar is declining by whatever the rate of inflation is. And have you seen what the government's claiming the inflation rate is right now? I think we, they say we hit 2%. Yep. They're keeping it 2 point something percent right now. Mm -hmm. But I actually did a podcast where I was talking about this and I got a call from the professor of accounting at uh, Kennesaw State University. He turned me into a site called shadowstats.com, 
where you look on the inflation tab and they add back in everything that the government takes out. Mm-hmm. And we're between 5 and 7% at any given time. Mm, makes more sense. So if our, exactly, a ton more sense because they're taking out what they claim vol- volatile things. And then they erase a few other things that we won't even get into. But there's a lot of other things they get into to keep that rate of inflation low for all the reasons that they go about that. And that's a whole other show to give them the reasons as to why they do that. But ultimately, if we're at 5 to 7%, let's say it's 5% per year. That means the dollar declines 5 cents of its value every single year at a compound effect. So as long as a person is having that payback on that loan, going back that, that entire time, they're actually giving them less money or at least less value every single year for 30 years. And I know you've taught that before. But what the, some people aren't looking at also is that we can raise rents. We as investors get to raise rents to pace inflation. Now, it's not going to be exact because we're, the inflation number we're given is cooked. But I know at, you look at the average increase in rents or rent raises across the country is 35 or 3.6%. So if one just goes up 3% per year, that's a compound increase on their cash flow and their total rents. And then if they're paying it back with a deflated dollar at an accelerated rate, we can literally see it'd be like, I, mean, I got to run the numbers sometime. I got to figure out the algorithms, but like 10 to 12 years, you're probably paying it back with $0 and then making money on that spread as it grows. So I've seen my personal belief, and I haven't looked everywhere because I just don't have the time because I'm so centered here, that the real estate investor is one of the few, if any others, that get to take advantage of inflation and actually make money with inflation. It's amazing. Yeah. I, I mean, All you have to do is fast forward 20 years and look at your life or meet people who are older and who invested in real estate a long time ago to understand that the numbers just work for this very reason. We we have an economy that inflates. That's that's just the way it works and and will continue to work as long as as we have quantitative easing and as long as politicians wanna wanna spend money, (laughs) you know, and create more money to do that. Precisely. Yeah. Well, that and, you, and then you get into the tax benefits. One of the few groups within the within the United States also gets to take advantage of uh, parts of their taxes with financing uh, real estate. So there's so many other facets of it. In fact, I had a, a client of mine right around the time that the quantitative tightening kicked in. You remember that that whole period right there at the end of 2017? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He he had signed a contract on two new build homes on the same street, same floor plan, same potential rents, same price. The difference one was was one was had the trim going in, the other one had yet to break ground. So it's gonna be about six months difference between their closings. He closed on the first one, we, we closed it for him December of 2017 at four point seven five percent rate. Fast forward to May of 2018, after quantitative tightening had heavily kicked in, the interest rate went up one full percentage point. Now him being the the CEO of his business was thinking, hey, I might not be making enough money on this, so I'm gonna back out of it. He called me to consider backing out, but he said, hey, when we talked, you told me when I had a decision make to call you, I'm going to drop this at your feet. What do you think, what has you seen other investors do? Well, at that point, I hadn't seen any other investors in the exact same quandary. So I said, you know, maybe you want to talk to your CPA and ask them a couple of things. What is the difference in the taxes you'll pay on the higher income coming in on the property with the lower interest rate because it's $50 a month difference? in your actual cash flow, so 600 a year, and then find out what is the difference in the tax deductibility on the one with the higher interest rate versus the one with the lower interest rate, and then come back to me. So when he went to the CPA, his number in his head was $50 a month, actually 49 and change in difference in cash flow, making one more valuable to him than the other. By time his CPA got done with the numbers, 
associated with his tax rate federally and where he was at uh, as far as his tax rate in the state. It was no longer $49 and change per month difference in cash flow. It's about $3.55 after the taxes were filed. So the other thing that we try and encourage investors to do is look at all the parts of this, not just how much is it going to cost me and what is my cash flow. There's so much more going on here. He would have walked away from an opportunity that was very, very minimal as far as the monthly difference once you factor in the taxes, and he would have lost on a great opportunity when it came to how inflation was going to be eroding his 30-year expense and how he was going to be able to continue to raise rates to pace inflation and the fact he was going to get that 13.33% with having a tenant. So that's another thing we like to get others to consider is there's more to it than what happens on a month-to-month basis. Absolutely. I mean, it's just the ultimate use of leverage to borrow 80% of the asset's value. You only put 20% down. Somebody else pays off that 20% for you. You, like you said, you probably get your 20% back within five or six years, and the rest is just free money after that. And that free money comes in the form of cash flow ongoing and equity appreciation and the loan pay down. I mean, tax benefits. It's really, I don't know anything else like it. Yeah, it's very, very hard to see. It's just getting one out of the consumer mindset is the, is the hardest thing you and I have to do. Right. So you don't talk about rates, but let's talk about them anyway. What, what are we looking at for the average person with, say, a 720 credit score and 20% down for an investment property? 720, well, you're going to see a little bit of a difference in rate for a 720, probably about 5.5-ish right now, 20% down if you're talking about a $100,000 acquisition, similar to what we're, do, what we're discussing. Some people say, what if I put 25% down? Well, sure, you know, you can do that. That's going to be closer to 5% today. But I always encourage you, you want to look at the long game here, because if you're putting 25% down, that's your money that you just put down instead of 20% down where another 5% belongs to somebody else that somebody else is paying off. There's a lot lost on that when you run the long game numbers out on that one. So that's kind of, that's where those are sitting today. And we're, there's a projection that they could be getting better going forward because of the where the market is heading and what's going on in our economy, where there is a lot of people speculating that the, uh, that the stock market is going to take one heck of a header. And if it does that, then uh, rates will definitely be the benefactor. Right. And do you, are you recommending a 30-year fixed rate or a 10-year or, yeah, what, what are you recommending to people? I'm always recommending the 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, back when the market did crash, there's a lot of people running on the arms. I'm not saying the arms is a bad thing, but it's very unpredictable. And if you can cash flow at a 30-year fixed, knowing that on a 30-year fixed, that is going to be a stable instrument for the entire time, and you can literally predict where you're going to end up as far as your dollar value is concerned and how that's going to kick in and pay for you, I always encourage a 30-year fix when you're talking about a portfolio and keep it predictable uh, and let the market erode it for you and run that out as far as you can. Now, I know that there is going to be some that you, you can take cash flows of paying off faster because you're going to need that cash flow quicker because of your retirement strategy, but at least you have options. And the other cool thing with a 30-year fixed, if a person decides they want to play the debt snowball game, the 30-year fix will give you a lot more opportunity to be able to let your portfolio decide which ones you want to pay off first and let the other ones go later. Or if you take some of them in arms and others not, then you're being forced by the actual instrument itself as to which ones you want to put your cash flow towards. So um, I think the 30-year fix gives you a lot more opportunity. Okay, very good. And so what are some, I don't know if this happens often, but do you sometimes turn down loans because the, the cash flow is just not there or it, it doesn't work that way? 
Uh, you know, I haven't run into a whole lot of that uh, that because the uh, investors themselves are weeding out the properties before they come in. Uh, so they're not going to hit my desk very often if they haven't already vetted out some sort of system or listened to decide on what they wanted, because we're going to have an initial conversation. We're going to get to the point of you're no longer a consumer spending money going to debt. You're now a, a business owner. And I'm bringing to you a business partner in the form of a loan who's going to put up 80% of the capital for your business. You're going to put up 20%, but you're going to take complete control and ownership of that business. And once that mindset is kicked in, I encourage them also to figure out what is the minimum you need to make it worthwhile to go to the next stage as far as going into contract and moving forward. And once they've come to those decisions, it's very rare do I see a uh, investor come to me, bring a house, uh, bring a property or an option there and decide, no, the cash flow is not there. Now, unless the performer they were looking at was highly inaccurate, which is not very often seen because the folks that you and I work with, we don't see that very often. Right. If at all. But yeah, the investors still have to do their due diligence, always check rent comps, get your appraisals, inspections. I mean, fortunately, lenders will require the appraisal, but be sure to get your inspection. I always wondered why uh, lenders don't require an inspection as well. The, the appraiser is supposed to be doing the inspection for us because the appraiser has a certain list of things that they have to be sure of before Fannie Mae will endorse that. So they've already put that, in, inject that into the system. So um, that's our boots on the ground, is that, uh, that appraiser. And it's also the boots on the ground from the investor. And I tell many of them uh, who ends up seeing that they may have to get like an operating income statement or a rental survey, you know, appraiser will do that for an extra $120, $130. And for qualifying a person with the rents on that property, we'll request it anyway. It may be a slightly more expensive appraisal, but you get to know whether or not that property will rent. You know, so you're, the thing that many like to do is live and buy, die by their pro forma. And I, I understand that. I tell many investors when I first start, the pro forma is its sole purpose for you is to use that as a method to decide which property you would like to take on as your next project, or at least your next business, if you will, from that particular provider. Not to compare between providers. You want to build a relationship with the individuals in each state, determine who it is that you like well enough to bring into your business. And then once you've got that relationship established, Go through those pro formas and then decide which property you want from those pro formas, which one fits your needs. And once you've decided on that, you rip it up and throw it away because the rest of it is, is not telling you the rest of the story. That professor I referenced earlier at, at Kennesaw State says he tells his students that uh, pro forma is Greek for made up. <laughs> because no matter how good they are at putting those together, there's a lot of, there's just, it doesn't cover all the ground. Yeah. So because there's so much more to real estate than just that, that's just a, a quick tool. That's what it is, a great tool, but it's not something to live and die by. If you live and die by the pro forma, you're going to find yourself disappointed because and it also doesn't tell you all about the other value we just talked about. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to make sure your insurance may be a different cost than what's on the pro forma. The taxes could change. I mean, all of these things, like you said, you can use it as a reference, but dig deeper for sure and verify. Exactly. Definitely dig deeper. And speaking of digging deeper, one of the main things that, and I, I know we're probably getting short on time for the show, but one of the things I always like to drive home with folks is start thinking now about what you're going to do after. Many people think, well, I'm just going to, you know, am I going to leave these to my kids? What am I going to do with this real estate with my, with my assets once I pass? I've been kicking that idea around for the last few years, and I have gotten to a point now that I just brought them all in. My children sit with us on a monthly basis. They, we opened up the books. They take a look at every asset we have. They took a look at the income that we have coming in. 
they vote on where our next investments go. Each member of the family has a has a whole life policy that follows the infinite banking strategy. And they once my children start working, they are required to put in 10% of their income into the family trust to grow the assets that they vote on, or they are not what they call a qualified beneficiary. And if they're not a qualified beneficiary, they do not get to take from the trust when they retire. The trust will only provide them the interest that it generates upon their retirement. They will never be able to take from the principal. Neither will I. And as long as I think that if we have everybody involved in my family in the growth and in the, the strategy and the, the decision-making, and then, of course, the investment itself, it changes the dynamics of those, those future generations if they're all involved, rather than seeing what tends to happen. Second or third generation gets their hands on it and completely destroys everything we worked our guts out to build. Mm, I love that. Well, you should write a book on that. I actually am. Good. <laughs> Interestingly enough. You know, I had heard a, a story, and I'll kind of uh, bring, it, bring it closer to close here with this story. I'd heard a gentleman one time. He had said that he was on a business trip with his wife. He was sitting on the plane, and he had felt uh, some chest pain, a lot of tightness and shortness of breath. And so when they got to their next stop, which was a, a layover, it was long enough they felt they were comfortable they to go to a hospital and get him checked out. They checked him out, said he was fine, sent him on his journey. Gets onto the second leg of the trip, and the captain comes in over the intercom of the aircraft and asks him to identify himself. So he hits the flight attendant call button. She comes to him, explains to him that when they land, they're going to hold everybody else in the plane, escort him off because an ambulance was waiting for him. When he got to the ambulance, he was taken directly to the hospital. Two surgeons were awaiting his arrival. When he got there, they explained to him he was misdiagnosed. He had a pulmonary embolism, and they needed to operate immediately. Their next words were, if there's anything in your life you need to consider, now is the time. So I shared that story with my children before I explained to them what I was going to do with this trust. And I asked them, what is it they do not know? If something happened to me and my wife that next day, because she's with me right now on a trip that we're, we're on right now. I'm actually in the, the pyramid in Memphis, at the, staying in the Bass Pro Shop Lodge here. And I, I'm, I've always worried about that. So when I asked them what, uh, what they didn't know, they didn't know anything. They said, we don't know what we don't know. So that's when we decided to get out of everything. Show them where bills have to be paid where, where the assets were. Broke it all down for them. Also wrote down three names that they need to call if something ever happened. One was my lawyer, very, very good close friend of mine, like a brother. The second was my life insurance guy who's handling our banking strategy, also like a brother. The next was a very close friend of mine that I can trust him to give him great advice on the real estate investments. And they have already committed to me that when they call, they will show up. And now after you call them is when you call granny and grandpa and the rest of the family. <laughs> so I'm going to ask everybody who's listening right now, if there's anything in life you need to consider, right now is the time. Quit wasting it. Quit thinking you're going to get it done tomorrow. Pull your family together. Sit them down. Start deciding together how you're going to make these things happen as a family. Love it. Love it. As a side note, when uh, my daughter was in high school and we were looking at colleges, she said, well, I don't really know why I need to go to college, mom, because I'm going to inherit all of your houses. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I said, well, honey, you know, I'm going to live till 120 because by 2050, they're going to have all this new cell regeneration. So you'll inherit it, but you'll be 100. So you better figure <laughs> something else out. <laughs> anyway. Well, um, you and I are the same mindset. You know, yeah. they, I, I told them, you got to take care of you. What I'm building here is not taking care of you. It's going to take care of us, but later after you've taken care of you. You yeah, have absolutely. to prove yourself worthy before you can start stepping into things that somebody else did. 
It's so important. It's so important for their growth. All right. Well, Erin, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. How can people find out more about you and your loans? Uh, the best place is erinbchapman.com. That will never change. Wonderful. I love it. All right. Thanks for joining me today. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. You can get a list of resources on our website at realwealthshow.com. All you have to do is log in or join. It's free. And you'll see the drop down for resources, which gives you links to lenders, insurance companies, property management companies, and turnkey property providers nationwide. Again, that's realwealthshow.com. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye-bye.